May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC, Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, doing our bit to help preserve the legacy of Shunju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his, and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, John Steiner. And John came to the San Francisco Zen Center in 1967, and Nelda Fuesta brought him. And um, I love it. He says, yeah, Nelda turned me on to LSD, pot, and Zen. And that was great. And, uh, you know, he... Then he heard about Tassahara and he wanted to come. And it was just a few months before the first practice period. But it, it wasn't like it became later where you have to pay all this dues and sit and, and you know, go months and months or a year or whatever before you can get to Tassahara. This was our first practice period. And so some people got in right away. Uh, you know, really, we had people come down the road, become not only good students, but priests, teachers. <laughs> I mean, they just come in checking it out, you know. And uh, uh, Dick Baker had an uncanny sense. Uh, Paul Disco pointed this out to me. And Paul's one of the people he picked up on right away. Paul just came in. He'd been to Tassara before, before the Zen Center owned it. He just came in to check it out. And bang, before you know it, he's the head builder. I mean, overnight. And uh, uh, Nils Holm uh, came in in 68. And uh, he was drunk and stoned. The only time... Uh, the first time he'd ever smoked pot. He had been in Big Sur. And um, uh, down in the baths, you know, uh, uh, Dick Baker started talking to him. And right away, Dick picked up, this is somebody we could use. I mean, Nels was a Danish carpenter. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, anyway, uh, John came in, and John was really good at, do, you know, being a student and doing what you have to do. Um, and let me say something. He makes it very clear here that uh, he was a rich kid, you know, and it was something he had to deal with. Uh, and that's what I've found. I've known a lot of rich kids, uh, that, that it is something they have to deal with. And uh, <laughs> sort of problem a lot of people would like, right? He's got a great line in here. <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil it for you, uh, but it has to do with the MacArthur uh, grants. <laughs> anyway, you know, some people think that uh, those of us, I grew up, uh, I never had to do anything. I had everything I wanted. Our family wasn't rich, but it had enough. And uh, my father had died when I was young, so... Uh, I was really in charge. My mother was extremely tolerant and understanding. 
She'd say, well, why don't you go out and get a job like your friends? I'd say, well, because I don't have to. Uh, but I was always active in doing things. I did work at home. I'm, you know, I liked playing the guitar, writing songs, writing poetry, messing around with my friends. But anyway, uh, the whole point of this is I think there's an assumption that people who come from mm, well-to-do uh, families are, are from families where they didn't have to fend for themselves, where everything was provided for them. A lot of us had that. That we weren't as good workers. We wouldn't be as good at working as people that came from a poor family where they, you know, they were having to scrap to get whatever they could get and that. And let me tell you, I was work leader at Tassahara, uh, at Green Gulch, and at the city center. And uh, I had people working with me there, not only when I was work leader, you know, I was assistant director, I was director. Uh, I ran the dining room for years. Rich kids were good workers. That's what I found. And and there there was I did not find a correlation uh, that that I would have expected. Actually, I found a little bit. I found the opposite. Uh, now we we had almost no one in Zen Center from really what you would call the lower classes. Uh, but my experience mainly outside of the Zen Center there is a is I would run into more trouble there getting people to work. You know, they resented me and didn't want to be told what to do and stuff like that. All right, well, I've gone on long enough about that. I just want to say it's a point I've, I've really never made, but which I've definitely noticed. Uh, and we had a lot of people at Zen Center who were well-educated college kids who, who hadn't worked normal jobs much or at all. And uh, right away, they were good workers. That's, that was my experience. Almost everybody was. Um, you know why? Because we had community. Uh, it really wasn't about whether we were haves or have-nots. We were community. We were together. We were doing it for each other and for ourselves. It was it was very harmonious. Even if we were bickering with each other and had resentments or whatever, the all, overall thing that was happening there in the early Zinsen or in a lot of society of counterculture type society was it was cooperative and it was idealistic and it, it, it wanted, wanted to improve things and make a better world and all that. And um, I don't think that exists much these days, mainly today. Uh, and I, I've, I've said this because this is something I picked up on actually from something I read. And I went, God, that is really true. Today, people are career-oriented. And I think one reason this has happened is the enormous difference between the distribution of wealth and the availability of wealth between when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s and today, there, you know, 
pardon me for repeating myself. I know I've said this in some other podcasts, but when I grew up, I, I had a, I, I would uh, have, a, I had paper routes, and I would throw papers in in front of homes that were like uh, very, very poor people on the other side of the railroad tracks. You know, uh, people that homes like little wooden. Uh, things that you think would be something uh, you you'd keep for a study in your backyard or something, uh, but they'd have a house, and it might be even a nicer house. Somebody who who uh, had a what you would think of as a menial job could save money and buy a house. There was a better distribution of wealth, and that has been eroded through the years, more and more. And the people that are transferring, that want to see that money transferred to the top, they control the message more and more. The more they get, the more they want. And it's it's sort of normal. So anyway, that's, <laughs> that's enough of that. <laughs> Pardon me. Listen, um, John was a good student. He's had a lifetime of of good deeds and philanthropy. When, like He was involved with the peace work uh, before he came to Zen Center in 67. He was very driven to make a contribution to the world, and he has. He has never stopped. But you'll hear about it from him, what he's up to now. You won't hear everything he's done. I don't know. I can't remember what we talked about and didn't talk about. Uh, uh, because there's another, there's a second podcast next week's going to be him too. But, you know, I can remember like back then he put out a magazine called Evolutionary Blues with great concern about the environment and how well we were going to evolve together. Um, yeah, really, uh, very impressive. So, uh, you know, see, I don't have to say anymore. That's enough. Uh, and, you know, this is like a lot of the podcasts. It's not really an interview. It's a discussion. And uh, I try to say as little as possible, but I can't. I haven't talked to John in a long, long time. <laughs> so, uh, look, uh, as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll give John a call. So when you hear the bell, if you've set your mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever as long as you like. And when you're ready, when you have that right state of mind and you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we'll give John Steiner a call. David Chadwick. John Steiner, top of the morning to you. Back at you, brother. It's been a couple of minutes since we last talked. Yeah, it has. It has. <laughs> um, indeed. And and you're there in Boulder, right? I are. Mm, nice place. I love Boulder. 
And I was thinking at some point before too long, we should just do a Zoom catch up. And we can use my Zoom room. Yeah, sure. It would be it, it would be great to see you. Yeah. Uh, we'll do a little of that right now. Uh, like, what are you doing? Right? What are you involved with right now? <laughs> I mean, at this very moment, or in my life? Oh, uh, uh, you know, what, whatever you want to <laughs> say. Now, uh, so tell me, are we recording this? Yep. Uh, and do we edit it, or is it all just part of one recording? Uh. If you want to say anything off the record, say it uh, uh, now or at the end. Uh, gotcha. All right. So uh, first reaction is personal. Uh, Margot had a knee replacement a few weeks ago, and so we go through that together. She's doing very well. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a hip replacement last January, mm-hmm. also successful. Uh, um, good. We're get, we're gonna we're gonna be grandparents for the first time in April. Yeah. Anyway, oh really? Sure really? That's yeah. uh, congratulations. That's great. Yeah. And in the yeah. meantime, our son, the prospective father, <clears throat> blew out his knee and is having to have ACL surgery tomorrow. Mm. So you know, it's like it's always this and that. What was he doing to uh, injure his knee? Uh, he was playing basketball, and he came down on somebody's foot or ankle, and yeah, ended up on the floor in pain. Oh, so life, life, life goes on, and you know, and probably like you, some very dear friends of ours are wrestling with potential terminal illnesses, and we've lost dear friends and colleagues, and yeah. We're and grateful to be alive. Yeah, yeah. Grateful to be alive. That's yeah. well said. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I, I remember older people, old people, saying when I was a kid, uh, "Just take care of your health. That's the most important thing." And I, I believed them, but you know, it didn't really concern me much. <laughs> well, I had a I had a dear friend when I was living in the Bay Area. Yeah, all those decades ago, a marvelous woman named Elsa Knight Thompson, and she had worked with Edward R. Murrow. Yeah, I remember her. Uh, she worked for KPFA, I think. Exactly right. She helped start Pacifica. Yeah, and we we got together around some kind of media program. She died in her late 70s. We became very close friends. And she was the first older person that I'd ever met who really was still growing and learning. Because mm. somehow I, I must have had this, you know, this unconscious picture that at some point it all stopped. <laughs> mm. And it, it was it wasn't so much a model at that time. It's like I took note. Mm. And have just been amazed at that we just keep growing and learning whatever our spiritual and other paths are. Right, if we allow ourselves to grow and learn. If we have, continue to have beginner's mind. Yeah, right, right. If we're blessed, if we're truly blessed with beginner's mind. 
Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, Elsa Knight Thompson, she uh, interviewed Suzuki Roshi and Richard uh, Baker, and, and I have that on Um It's not the greatest well, let- interview in the world. Dick kept sort of uh, getting in there, but, uh, and, you know, it wasn't Suzuki at his best, but I've got it. <laughs> well, bless her soul. <laughs> She was a, she was a, a great woman of a great woman in her own right, but certainly a great woman of radio, right? In our era, and uh, I'm sure she was very close to Richard Moore. You remember him vaguely. All right, Dick Moore lived in Muir Beach, and so uh, I got to know him and his wife and you know sons pretty well. And and he was a founder of KQED, uh, oh, and he was the oh. one that put Alan Watts on. And he kept and uh, you know I kept up with him, and I was visiting him in the Redwoods, you know, the retirement community in Mill Valley, where mm-hmm. where we had some other friends. And you know he he Dick was a little cynical and uh, like too critical sometimes, very sharp. And he was writing uh, very obscure poetry, uh, in, like in his 90s there. But uh, he had re- some regrets about promoting Alan Watts. And I said, what are you, crazy? Alan Watts was great. That was really important. You know, just because you knew him and knew he was very flawed as an individual and uh, would come into the studio drunk, he still, when he went on air, he was sober. You know? Well, Alan Watson Shrimpa. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, just <laughs> you you know, you can you can argue both ways. Just because they were awake doesn't mean they they necessarily were developed at certain psychological levels and vice versa. No. Oh no. But it's just remar- you know, remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Ken Wilbur had a lot to Ken Wilbur has a lot to say about that in terms of human yeah. development. Yeah, I, I, I remember that. Uh, uh, and, uh, he had, um, I used to know him years ago. Uh, I'm not a neighbor of his now like you are. Uh, and, um, see, he didn't, uh, dismiss people because of their faults. He, he, uh, you know, he was greatly criticized for, uh, uh, his praise of uh, Don Frijan's books, uh, Bubba Frijan, Don oh, Levananda, uh, and uh, and he said, you know, that he was, you know, he was being attacked for that. He said, look, I'm just talking about what he wrote, and it was a very clear exposition of uh, the perennial philosophy, or whatever, however he stated it, and um, he. You know, he, he realized that the, the weakness, that, that gurus had weaknesses, teachers had weaknesses, and some of them were different from others. He felt uh, Suzuki Roshi's weakness was his health. Um, anyway, go on, go on. No, no, no. I mean, we can, <laughs> my, one of my favorite Alan Watts quotes from the, his book on Taoism. Mm-hmm. 
was, at least this is how I remember it, the Dao man sits down with the Zen man, but when his knees hurt, he gets up and walks away. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Um, but it's interesting. You know, my, I am just so moved Yeah, to see the Zen word. Go, go ahead. Well, I mean, speaking of hurt knees, I'm just so moved seeing the uh, retirement community that was started by Zen Center and now will include many other people open up. Yeah. In yeah. Uh, Marin County. Yeah. I, I mean, I yeah. know that's been in the works for a long, long time, but it's just anyway, I just find it very moving. Yeah, it's been now. Now, uh, uh, we go on elaborate on that some. I'm, I, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Well, I'm forgetting. You know what I'm talking about, correct? No, no. Don't assume I know what you're talking about. Well, because I don't remember. Zen Center has helped open up a retirement community for aging Zen monks to go and live out their years. You know where all of the. Um, all the needs and facilities are going to be offered. Oh, like, you mean and so old, old age home and so yeah, the retirement I mean. community, yeah. right? Uh, that was orchestrated by Susan O'Connell. I don't know if you ever met her or are familiar with her, but uh, she's one of the most effective people that ever came to Zen Center. Uh, well, and, it, somehow it just feels like. It's just, it just feels like a completion of that community of all these years. Yeah. Not that it's ever, ever complete. Yeah. And it also, I have been very moved. I, I had the privilege when I was a senior in college to take a course with Eric Erickson. Oh, yeah. And, and, and was very, very touched by his life cycle. Yeah, that was and at he, Harvard. That was at Harvard. Um, and I um, and the eighth stage of the life cycle, which, you know, basically he took Freud's three stages and just kind of tracked them through life and gave them what he called them psychosocial stages. But the last stage is called integrity versus despair. Ah, and and we all go through that at the you know, toward the end of our lives of just making sense of our lives and what's worked and didn't work and what we wished and, you know, the whole psychological, but it's very much of a spiritual, I think, acceptance of really just as it is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. but there's some connection I feel with that with Insel, of just allowing integrity yeah. for people to live out their lives with integrity in community and being given so much of what they gave. Yeah. Well, uh, and so yeah. is, uh, uh, people who have been with Zen Center over 20 years can go to Enso and retire there for free. Other people can, uh, buy into it, you know, and live there. You know, it's in Healdsburg. Uh, uh, um, it's, it looks pretty, it's, uh, Looks like a pretty together place, and you know, Inso is a, a larger organization, uh, and and the Zen Center contingent in this retirement center is only 
part of it. But basically, they're trying to get, you know, contemplative type people are not just contemplative, you know, um, uh, you know, more sensitive, aware, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for a word. No, no, it, it, <laughs> at, le- at least while they and we still have those faculties available to us. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like you, I mean, I'm just watching friends and family go through dementia and Alzheimer's. So as long as we've got it, we're lucky. Yeah, David, yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna cir- yeah. I'm going to circle back to the first question you asked me. What am I doing? Yeah. So, you know, in the outer world, and as you know, I mean, my major work all these years has been kind of in the social change world. We can get into more of that, but oh yeah, yeah. mostly it's a- mostly it's around the election in 2024. Yeah, and how do we? How do we keep the House and the White House, the House and the Senate blue and the White House blue? And what we're focusing on, Margo and I, um, really are two areas. Uh, and it's ba- basically in the realm of voter registration and get out the vote. Yeah. And it turns out that 86% of high school students who pre-register and register vote and 40% of high school students go on to college. Yeah. So if we're going to get people to really be voting citizens, we have to get them in high school. Yeah. And in Ohio, for example, 75% of high school students are unregistered. Mm. So we've come across an organization called the Civic Center, uh, a woman named Laura Brill, who's an attorney in L.A., and it one point clerked with Ruth Bader Ginsburg Mm. and she's extraordinary and her organization is quite unusual and works closely with other statewide and national organizations. So if anybody is listening, uh, look up the civic center. And if you want to get involved more with that, give me a call 303-912-8300. Now, give me the name of the center again. Civics Center. How do you spell that? C-I-V-I-C-S? C-I-V-I-C-S. Yeah, like, like civics, like taking civics. Yeah, Civic Center. Yeah. Yep. Just wanted to make sure. Uh, good for you. Excellent. Uh, you know, what I think is if, you know, the Republicans are just so good at messaging and, uh, and, uh, you, you know, good Lord. Uh, but, um, if the Democrats could get in a position where they could actually pass some legislation, the number one thing, uh, I would like to see them do, and now many people feel this way, uh, is, uh, uh, the, you know, strengthened right to vote, the, you know, the making, uh, uh, National election, a, a, a national holiday, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, um, you know, going after some of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Republican, uh, uh, agenda has been 
to dis- to discourage voting for decades. There's nothing new. Uh, doing everything possible. The fewer people who vote, the better their chances are because their their core voters uh, uh, will pretty much show up. You know. Uh, and what do you think about that? Uh, I think I agree with you. And if we had the votes in Congress, the laws that you're talking about will be passed. And I think it's given what we're up against, in particular with folks like Cornell West and Bobby Kennedy and no labels. To me, it's all about voter registration and getting as many people out to vote as they can. The other interesting thing about high school students Pretty much across the board, it breaks two to one uh, Democratic. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how that works in in more conservative states, particularly like Montana, which we need to find out. But my guess is it's still significant enough that the work needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Period working on is voter registration in the black yeah. in the black community, which we know is about nine to one democratic. And there's yeah. a phrase called relational grassroots organizing, where basically people vote because they know people. They trust their pastors, they trust their neighbors, they trust yeah. you know, wh- whoever they trust in the community, if spoken to, they'll come out and vote. Multipliers. And it's more complex than that. Hmm? Multipliers. That's what we call However, it. it works. That's that's yeah. the other area we're working on, and I'm also happy to share that. But I won't go down in the weeds on that one. Yeah. But I do want to say something I found fascinating that I just read this morning. Yeah. Robert Reich. Do you ever read Robert Reich? Oh, well, sure. I'm very is? familiar yeah. with him. Do you read his daily newsletter? No, I do not. Okay. So he asked the question today. Why doesn't Biden get more credit? Right. It's it's a great question. And he went through several arguments. Um, If you Google Robert Reich, his newsletter will probably come up and it's for free on Substack. But he goes through the various arguments and then he says something that I haven't heard anybody say. And he goes back to Eisenhower and how in that era... Politics was a lot less emotional. Oh, yeah. People put, up, people put out arguments. People agreed and disagreed. But they talked about issues. But they did it in a rather calm and measured way. Right. And Biden and the speeches he's been giving lately are terrific. By and large, they're largely unemotional. Unlike Trump. And right. the media has come to buy in to emotions, right. anger, rage, you know, the whole nine yards. That's by and large not, not Biden. And yeah. it, was a, it was a point of view that I hadn't seen before because he doesn't really match, obviously, the younger generation. But Trump has been, and you know, bless his damaged soul. Um, he's brilliant. And the media has kind of, over the years, as you know, in this, the Republicans have been very good with emotions and anger and getting the media to respond the way they want them to respond. That's right. And it doesn't, they don't respond the same way to Biden. And in the end, Reich's point was, 
the argument that the Democrats should make is, do you want a mature elder in the White House or do you want a child? Or do you want somebody who's childish? Yeah. Difference between being childish and childlike. So anyway, I just found that fascinating. Yeah. And it yeah. allowed me to understand something I really hadn't quite understood before. Yeah. 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 Uh, I agree. I agree. Do you, do you want, do you want uh, an adult in the, in the White House? Or do you want someone who's childish? I think childish is the way to say it. Uh, well, and throws, temper, and throws temper tantrums on a regular basis. Right. And, and they're uh, getting worse. Right. Uh, was, but, but we'll see. It's, uh, it's a very fluid situation. And from a, a witness point of view, what's going on in politics and all the poly crises, you know, tragic and horrible and awful as it is, it's kind of a real opportunity for witness consciousness and detachment, or what I'll say, I've always loved the third patriarch. Life is easy as long as there are no preferences. But I think <laughs> that's right. <laughs> from my point of view to say, well, we've got preferences, but no expectations. Right, right. Well, but anyway, yeah. I'd love to hear your bigger view, almost at the level of creation and destruction of, you know, where we are on the planet in our lives going through stuff that I don't think we ever could have imagined when we were Zen students together back in the uh, 60s. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll uh, I'll think about that and and uh, uh, tell you later. Right now, I want to hear Maybe, yours. We'll, 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 <laughs> David, we'll save it for our next conversation. Right, uh, but I want to hear yours. Um, now, uh, you you have been you know what I've seen is you being involved in politics in a rather lofty way. Uh, you're, you're not, you're, you're always involved in some, uh, when you're involved in politics, you're involved in some sort of essential, uh, way of looking at the way it's structured and, and, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you're not, I, I don't see you, uh, being a true believer, uh, you know, worshiping any particular candidates as much as uh, looking at the the way things are structured and the problems in it, and the way things are managed, the way things they're set up, and um, the way people's consciousness is and how to uh, help it to evolve in, in a healthier way. So what do you think? Uh, I think I'm going to say thank you for that perception, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'll take, but I'll take off from that. I mean, it's, it's an open ended. Yeah. But what I call it's, 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 it's more, yes. I mean, it's the odd observation of the old line of the personal <laughs> is political and the political is personal. And that ultimately, you know, it's about consciousness change and I still go back to, you know, you know, the work done back in Spiral Dynamics. Say that again. Or not. Say that again. Do you know the work of Don, Don Beck 
and Claire Graves and Spiral Dynamics. I just assume I don't know anything. And tell me about it. Well, I'll, gi- I'll, give, a, I'll give a quickie. So Claire Graves, who was Beck's teacher, who I got to know well, and who Ken Wilber knew well, and it's how I met Don. And Ken Wilber relied on a lot of Don's work in his all-quadrant model. Basically said the cultures evolve the same way individuals do. You know, Piaget talked about stages of cognitive development, and we know about, you know, Erickson talked about life cycle stages of development. Wilbur wrote a book about this mm-hmm. years ago. And Beck said, essentially, we move from being tribal cultures to, you know, one tribe gets strong and we have empires. And then we end up having the great saints and teachers of the ages from Moses to Jesus to Buddha to on and on. And ethics and morals and values slowly come to be what holds the society together than just power. Yeah. And that can, and that can become very rigid and, you know, all all the problems we see with the Christian right. And all of these memes, as they're called, uh, Graves gave them colors, which I won't go into here. And again, I'm happy to share this. There's a wonderful chart that Mm -hmm. describes all this very simply. But then, you know, we go through this long period and through and after the Middle Ages, we evolve into basically capitalism and democracy. Yeah. And that's a lot of the 200, you know, 50 years of our history. And then you're talking about the Western world now, right? That is correct. Very well said. The Eastern world has a very different sense. And then after the war, we have all of our movements from civil rights to women's to LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, the colors are useful. So the tribal color is purple. The empire is red. This great involvement of Spirit and values and ethics and morals is blue, kind of the rise of capitalism and democracy as organizing principles is orange. And then green are these movements that occur after the war. Mm-hmm. And each meme thinks it's right. And each meme doesn't quite like. Preceding means. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're saying unhealthy. John. Yep. Each, uh, I want you to repeat that. Each meme doesn't quite We're like. We're calling each of these developments as memes. Right, right. And each side, each of these memes has a healthy side and an unhealthy side. For example, we need rules and regulations. Right. To run a country or to run an organization. Yeah. And when those aren't there, we get into trouble, which we're seeing. Right. When people don't want to play by the rules. Right. I mean, capitalism has been incredible, and it's destroying the planet. Right. And we're slowly seeing an involvement, 
you know, going back from consumer capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. And that's a much longer conversation, obviously. And all, all these movements have been terrific in terms of opening consciousness and bending the moral arc toward justice. Right. But each of these memes thinks it's got the answer and it's right. And it tends not to like, you know, the memes downstream. I mean, how much many in our era had had trouble with business and capitalism. Yeah. And yet it's been the few it's it's been great and it's been awful at the same time. Yeah, well and then what's yeah. great and Yeah. It, it can let be good. Finish. It can let be me, healthy or unhealthy, like exactly. Any other, you know, and then and this is where it gets into what you're talking about. And then Graves said, "There's this momentous leap where you see the whole. You see all of these memes, and he called that yellow, and that you had to see the whole picture and the importance of each one." in the development of a culture in the same way you have to see each one in the development of individual, whichever line of development you take. Right. And then there's a, a third one, which is turquoise, which is really whatever we, you know, we could call it the non-dual. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Wilbur wrote a book years ago called Up From Eden. Right. And his kind of sad analysis at that point, and, and these are eight stages that were between stages two and three. As, as a species, we're, as we can see, we're not very evolved. Yeah. And I'm not sure where he'd say we are now. And Margot, my wife, had a phrase years ago, beat the clock with mass extinction. And the clock is <laughs> what we're talking about, is the, is the evolution of consciousness. That's right. And and so how we make this jump when we can see the whole or we're all connected or we're all one or it's just, you know, mind drops away and it just is. Yeah. And 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 more and more people hopefully move into that place in all the institutions of our society, not just those of us in spiritual communities. So. The answer is yes. Yeah. I think it's both the structural changes that need to happen in our democracy, like open primaries or ranked choice voting or end of gerrymandering or getting money out of politics. But it's also the consciousness of more servant leaders who are in there to truly serve and can see the point of view of everybody mm-hmm. and somehow can ha- have, have the skill set to bring that together to create create more common ground and even higher ground. And yes, I'd say that's exactly if you were to have in one dimension what my mission or life purpose has been, it's been about that. And and how does politics serve that? Yeah. Um you know, uh you're uh you've got a, a very strong right livelihood urge. You've always had it. You had it before you came to Zen Center. And really, you've consistently gone along on it. Sometimes, but, 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 you know, there's a whole other 
stream there that's connected to it that that is this you know like another side of it is your spiritual uh path uh which uh like i said not separate from it but um you 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 uh, always had uh, uh, a a very strong spiritual path uh where did that start how far back can you remember some sort of um, spark, some something, you know, saying there's more to this than I thought or than my parents thought or whatever. Uh, how, how far back does that go and how does that lead you to Zen Center and then from Zen Center to some various other paths you've been involved with? Gosh, David, do we have another? First of all, that's a wonderful question, and I deeply appreciate it. And, um, well, I'll, I'll talk for a while. I'll let you decide how long this conversation goes. I'll tell you the first thing that comes to mind is I remember when I was about, it could have been around eight or nine. Yeah. Somehow trying to wrap my mind around something that was not wrappable. Namely, the concept of infinity. Yeah. And it just... Anyway, so that's number one. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was at Harvard, and I went out for what they called the Crimson Key Society, which were the folks that showed visitors around the campus. Uh And I don't remember exactly what the question was, but it was like, how would you talk to somebody from the South who basically didn't like blacks? (laughs) Yeah, right. And and without thinking about it, I said, well, I'd say to them, you know, you could have been born black just as easily as you could have been born white. And I was not asked to return for the next interview. But it's like (laughs) my mom, my, my mom had been a social worker. Yeah. And I think early on, without knowing it, I just developed, and I think it was unconscious for a long time, whether it's empathy or to put myself in other people's shoes, or to recognize that even when I was young, I had privilege. Yeah. And other people didn't have privilege. And, you know, I mean, what's allowed my life to work the way it has, and it's taken me, took me many years to have it be okay, is that my dad and his two brothers, in 1947, after having been in business during the Depression, started what became a major American toy company called Kenner Products. Yeah. And money came into the family. Um. And I was given, I mean, I got a lot of time to knock around and go through a long identity crisis, parts of which continue to persist. But, you know, it was like I was given a lifetime MacArthur Award. Yeah. And I always felt a huge level of responsibility around that largesse and that gift. Yeah, yeah. And And so that kind of, gave me the basis to do the, to do the work that Margot and I have evolved and been able to do. But the spiritual side, 
Do you remember a woman way back when, David, you remember everybody. And in fact, if you know where she is, uh, Jack Kaplan, my old friend from those days, and I have been wanting to be in touch with her, Nelda Festy. Nelda Festy. How do you spell that last name? I, well, it was F-O-E-S-T-E, and then she changed her name, and she married, and I think lived in England. But she and I had been Nelda, dating. well, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't think we know where Nelda is. Um, but I can, uh, you know, I, I can make sure, uh, uh, you know, one thing I do is just ask on Facebook and and there's a limited, limited number of people who, uh, will read what I ask who might know. Uh, and, uh, but I think we have, Asked that before. I don't. I just don't remember anything. I would, David. I'm not on social media, and I would absolutely welcome that. So here's the story. Yeah. I was in Berkeley. I decided one day it was time for a hippie girlfriend. I walked into the Mediterranean Cafe, and there was Nelda. Right. And we ended up going out for a few years, and she introduced me to marijuana, LSD, and Zen. Oh. And I had gone. I had gone through a round of troubles. Well, we can leave it at that for now, but I'm always happy to go into it in more depth. And I'd been away. And when I came back, she had gone to that first fundraiser for Tassahara. And she decided she wanted to go to the practice period. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know anything about Zen. And she gave me a book by Alan Watts to read. And I read it. And it was the first thing that literally ever made sense to me. It was Mm. like, oh, that's how the world works. Mm. And I remember walking in to apply to go to Tassajara with Nelda that first summer. And there was Yvonne Rand in the office. Yeah. And somehow, you know, there must not have been enough people to fill the places. We got to go. Yeah. Do you remember what month you walked in? Must have been around April. That's Because I think I only sat at Sakoji for a couple of months before yeah. I even went to Tassahara. Yeah. I mean, I think I, it's like I was the last one through the door. Yeah. Were, were you? So it was a combination. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Well, you know, I spent the summers of 66, 7, and 8 there. No, no, not there 6. For, not 6. We, yep. What, what was the summer of Sahara open, David? 67. I'll be darned. I've had it wrong all these years. Anyway, I was there the first three summers, and then I lived there for three years in the 70s. So, But my spiritual life, yeah, from that direction, I mean, Zen Center took me in. And when I went to Tassahara in 76, that led me to basically stay there for three years. It was Zen Center or a halfway house. And Dick (laughs) Baker and the community had been extraordinary, again, in taking care of me. Uh Uh-huh. And so, but those three years kind of began to develop a foundation in me, both 
personally, psychologically, and spiritually, which has really been the foundation of the rest of my life. Yeah. And I still sit, you know, most mornings in a chair. And, you know, Margot and I have been through a number of wonderful teachers in different ways, but I really, I just always come back in a way to the simplicity of Zen. Right. And, and, and form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Yeah. And the guardian as kind of, it was like, you know, from a Jungian perspective, I might, you know, might be called an intuitive. You know, I just, I, I kind of see things and I know things. And it was that experience with Alan Watts. Oh, yes, this is the way it is. Right. And it's now, okay, so what does that mean in terms of a life? Yeah. And it wasn't my dharma to stay with Zensen, at least in terms of sewing a Roxu and being part of the community in a formal way, but it's always there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's as good as it gets, really. Uh, it's just, it really is. <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, that's very well said. Um, uh, the um, uh, did you have? Uh, you know, I th- I'm looking back. The the oldest memory I have of you right now, I can see you and Bill Lane. Uh, Picking up trash in the pickup truck and and doing other sort of you know whatever hauling stuff, you remember that? Oh yes, first, <laughs> first summer, at, first summer at Tatsahara, we were on the garbage detail. That's Bill right. Was a, That's was right. Very good friend, and how his life unfolded was such a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he he, uh, he he was a tragic character, and you know he's been a great deal toward the end of his life with me. I did not know that. David. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, let's table that for another conversation, but I'll tell you the first time I remember you. Yeah. I, 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 this is how I remember it. I don't remember who sat to my left that first training period, but I think Bob Halpern sat to my right. And <laughs> I think you sat next to Bob. Uh huh. And yeah, I remember the, that. Yeah. And the thing I remember about Bob was it was summer and the flies were out. And I just had enough and I was literally about to swat a fly. <laughs> and Bob Halpern's arm literally reached out and stopped me from swatting that fly. <laughs> in the middle in the middle of a Zazen period. <laughs> And I'm sure it was like the noon Zazen period because you couldn't, there weren't flies and you couldn't see anybody in the morning or at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Bob was great at spontaneous acts that uh, sometimes might have gone a little far, but often were like really impressive. Uh, David, do you think that could somewhat be a description about you as well? Well, uh, uh, your no, no, the, the trajectory of your life <laughs> and Bob's are very different, and I, oh. I, 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 uh, 
you're you're uh, I don't want to compare you. Uh, no, I, what we're not comparing. I'm comparing you and Bob. Yeah. Oh, me I and said, Bob. Yes, Bob I and I had a lot in common. A description of you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bob and I had a lot in common that way. Yeah. We tended to see the 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 opposite side of things, and uh, uh, um, yeah, we had a lot in common that way. There were some ways in which uh, we weren't at all alike. But um, yeah, oh, I know that. Uh, and I, I can ask you more about. It. Let me ask a question, David. How often have people interviewed you? for the Cuke Archives in the same way you interviewed me and obviously countless other people? Well, um, I did I did one interview of a few months ago that uh, it, it, there, there's a profile and an interview, a very serious uh, fellow um, is interviewing uh, Zen Buddhists all over, uh, different types. It's been... You know, he's on like a 10-year, well, he's already put 10 years into it. He's retired and had a, a lifetime of doing big projects, you know. And so he he's he's retired and he's doing this very seriously. So he did that. One thing is, I get asked that periodically, there's so much about me on com and in my books because there's uh, literally tens of thousands of pages. So uh, yeah, yeah. there's hardly anything that isn't already there. Uh, uh, there's too much of me to begin with. But I'll do that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that if somebody wants. But getting other people's stories uh, is uh, I really love doing. And I'm, well, you're great at it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it it is. It is, uh, and uh, it's it's really sort of inspiring. Uh, everybody, you know, uh, I just get, uh, you know, in, in, in delicious tidbits and uh, like impressive life stories. They don't necessarily, you know, what's impressive might be concealed within a life that looks uh that looks tragic or that looks um boring or something like that but that none of it's really boring and um you know so and, and and it's and it's never one thing no it's not it's not um so even yeah. even bill lane oh bill so, lane uh, or whomever yeah um Bill Lane uh, had, um, you know, he had a very sharp eye. He's a guy that that just—he's uh, the type of person you say couldn't uh, couldn't uh, put up with nonsense. Uh, and and you know what what he had to fight with was his judgmentalism about other people, and uh, he could be uh, he could be uh, rather rude to. Uh, people in stores and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, and once he, once he did one of those things and he turned to me, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm getting better at not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> David, let, let me, let me switch subjects. Yeah. Um, I'm having 
an elder moment or a senior moment, which I often now call Google moments. Yeah. And I'm blanking on the last name of our friend Peter. Schneider. Who was, who was an actor. Coyote. Coyote. So I just, Peter and I are not in touch and I'm not in touch with him. But if I were to pick a role model from all my years at Zen, and, and we were at a practice period, I think, together in the summer once when he was on one of Jerry Brown's, I think, you know, statewide art commissions. Yeah. But how Peter has integrated his progressive side, his artistic side, and his Zen side. Yeah. It's almost like nothing I've ever seen. Yeah. And I just, I have such respect for him. Yeah. As someone, you know, who came through Zen Center and lived, shall we say, and is still living a very comprehensive life. Yeah. And, you know, I have not, I've not kept up with a lot of Zen Center people. The one person that I kept up with most was John Nelson. Oh, yeah. And his death really so deeply affected me. Mm. And I used to stay with John and Kim when I was in Washington. And and if we didn't, if I didn't stay there, we'd always have a meal together. And, you know, John, like Peter in a different way, you know, sat every morning, I think, his entire life, as long as he could. Yeah. And what he did in the world, starting with Huey Johnson. Right. When he was with Huey at the Nature Conservancy and then on and on and on in Trust for Public Land. Right. He he was, you know, we used as you know, we used to call him the laughing Buddha. <laughs> because he had always laughing, great sense of humor, and you know, just did so much. I'm sure that the depth of or his obituary in some depth about what he did and who he was involved with in his lifetime is somewhere in the archives. But, you know, there, there are many greats, many stars in our firmament. Of course, everyone is one, as you're really alluding to. But yeah. he was a dear, dear friend for, for decades. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I really liked him. Uh, you know, he lived in Mirror Beach, uh, for a long time. Yeah. So I'd see him a lot there. He was also very helpful. There's certain types of things if I was involved with, I'd let him know. And, um, you know, yeah, you're, you're this way too. He'd think about who could he connect with you with, uh, uh, or, you know, in what way could he help? Um, and, um, he really loved working for Huey Johnson. Uh, because uh, Huey had a great management style, which he he would trust people and uh, give them a chance, you know. He'd leave them alone. He was not a micromanager, which was uh, one of uh, uh, Dick's uh, traits. <laughs> that, but uh, uh, he, he, he um, anyway, Huey Johnson was was um, really something. And John, uh, John working with him for TPL was great to watch. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, John really, I mean, 
you're alluding to it. I mean, John really was a bodhisattva. And, and, but I'll tell you my favorite Huey Johnson line. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite descriptions by one person of another that I've ever heard. I just came up because I mentioned it to someone yesterday. Stuart Brand, so they say, once called Huey a thug for God. Uh-huh. <laughs> great, great line. Anyway. Hey, I'll give you a Huey Johnson soul. line. Yeah. He said, some people get heart attacks. I give them. <laughs> uh, My uncle once said to me, you know, part of growing up is when you stop asking, now, what does that person think of me? And you say, well, what do I think of them? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Same, almost not quite. That's a preliminary to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hear you, David. Yeah. Um, uh, By the way, question: Do I presume you're in touch with Richard these days? Yes, I am. Uh, yes, I am. Not not in the last uh, couple of months, but um, uh, I am. You know, he's like uh, eighty-seven. Uh, yeah. Birthday in July, I think. No, his birthday's like in April. Uh, but we we had the event for him in July, I guess. Because they flew well, me, me there. Favor. That's the only time oh, I've really? left Bali. That's the only time I've left Asia. Not not true about Bali. In the last ten years, was wow. uh, they flew me there for the twentieth anniversary of Johannesoff and his eightieth birthday, and I had a great time. And let me tell you, I love being at Johannesoff. I love his group. I, I love being at Crestone. But the German place and the German students and being there it, to me is the most comfortable. Zen group to be with. Well, please give him my love. Yeah, I will. Next time you talk to him. I mean, he saved my life, literally. Yeah. And we had a few little whatevers over the years, but we ran into each other on a plane because he also had a Airbnb and Zen, Zen Center in Boulder, which I think must still exist. Oh, it does. But it's, I um, it's, um, Christopher, um, uh, Christopher Dillo, Chris Dillo runs it. He's German. He's, he's the abbot there now. And he's married to Mike Dixon's daughter, Sophie. And she's an artist. And, uh, it was the Briar Rose bed and breakfast right across from Naropa. That's, that may well be where we last saw each other in person. For breakfast one day. I, I think that that is quite likely true. Yeah, it's been a while, but 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 then that's more. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Because I was staying there. So, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I I love that place. Um, well, I'm glad to hear how comfortable it is. Margot and I had a breakfast with Mike and Dulcie Murphy in Mill Valley a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Michael's Michael, I think going at, going on, must be 93 or four now. And just, it was wonderful hearing his ongoing brotherly relationship with Richard all these years. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you know, the people that are closest to Richard, I'd say Mike Murphy, number one, but Paul Lee, who died last year, uh, yeah. very close. And of course, Earl McGrath, 
going back. I mean, Dick mm-hmm. told me Dick was shook up for for quite some time after Earl died. Earl was very important to him. I mean, they were in the Merchant Marine together, and uh, right and. You know, Earl had uh, an illustrious career. He was president of Rolling Stones International. He was Jim Carroll's manager. He, he, um, he was he was a, a, a sort of very important and unknown person in the rock and roll world. world. And uh, he married a, a a woman who uh, was some sort of countess or something. What was she from Italy? Uh, I can't remember. I. You're, you're beyond, I don't know, David. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, there was another person who was very important to Richard, who I got to know a little bit, and who I adored, namely Nancy Wilson Ross. Well, of course, yeah. 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 I mean, she played a major role in his life. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, that's very anyway, true. He, um, very true. Bless, she she was very Richard disturbed. And, uh, by how things worked out with Zen Center. And she tried to talk to him about some of his behavior. But, you know, it, it's a problem when you get too important. It's, 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 um, uh, and, and, and we, we tend to be shot down when we get too important. And, and I think it's something that, that's good that needs to happen. Uh, and, you know, sense of entitlement and all that. Uh, and uh, you know Abraham Lincoln said, "If if you if you want to see a person's character, that their real character, give them power." And uh, so, but the thing about Dick is, it, it, it he came back, and uh, I, I just did a, a podcast talk with Rick Wick, so I, I, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd remember him. He's been living in Norway, for Sweden, for thirty years, and hmm. he he had a he had a little one night stand in the city uh, when he was in, from Tassara, and he came back. and In Dunkson, he told Dick. He said, told him about it. and He said, "Oh God, she now she's taking it really serious, and she's mad at me because I'm not." And Dick said to him, "Well, you learned something." And then later, he said, you know, and then when all that stuff happened with Dick, you know, uh, and uh, uh, I just thought, well, he's learned something. <laughs> I thought that was so great. And- well, I mean, and again, thank thank goodness. Well, maybe we all get to live as long as we need to live to keep learning something. But that's been an utter gift in this lifetime to keep yeah. learning something. Yeah. Well, and you know, yeah. whatever, whatever form it takes and, and whatever it takes, well, which is often not what we choose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, one thing, I hear you. one thing you notice, I don't call him banker Roshi. And actually, I, 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 I do notice that I don't call Suzuki Suzuki Roshi either. I only do it to be polite to people I'm talking to. I do not use the word Roshi uh, officially. You won't see it. Uh, I'll quote other people using it. I, I, I've stopped using honorifics, uh, you know, because who do you call Roshi and who do you not? You know, 
Once you once you call one person Roshi, I mean, I've lived in Japan. You got to be really careful about that, uh, and it's used differently there. It's not like in America. But uh, like, if we're going to bring up Reb, we'd say, "Well, Reb, so and so, and Baker Roshi." Well, Reb's Reb's been a, a teacher for you know forty years or something. Why are why aren't you using Roshi for him? And then you know what I mean. I just don't do it. I stay away from it, David. But, yeah, that 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 might be worth an interesting short article for say tricycle uh. because I, <laughs> you know, well, but 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 here here's the point, and I I'm not sure how true it's been with Zen Center, but the extent to which people, particularly younger people, have a tendency to give themselves away. Oh, yeah. You know, whether it's to a spiritual community or a religious community or even a political community. Yeah. And And what can we do to at least Give people permission, as we used to say all those years ago, to question authority. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Question authority. And, yeah. and, but what you're saying isn't something I've heard very often. And I think it's really important, and I think it's the kind of thing that, that could move through the Zen world and the spiritual world, because it's an issue... In every situation. Yeah. yeah. And part of what you're saying, I mean, the great teachers are the ones who really ask questions and is, you know, and have the kind of almost the kind of management style that Huey had where they just show up when they see somebody causing harm to themselves or somebody else. I mean, this is very generic. Yeah. But I just, I really encourage you. And I'd write it with you. If you want to, do, if you want to write, I won't write the first draft because it's your, it's your expression. Yeah, but I think it's one of those important insights. Yeah. Well, I talk about it in my first book, "Thank You and Okay," and I talk about it in "Crooked Cucumber" somewhat, uh, a little bit. Uh, I. Uh, I've talked about it on Cuke Archives and in podcasts a little bit. Uh, mainly, I don't bring it up. Uh, and uh, let me finish uh, Tassara's stories book I'm working on. Hey, uh, you got you got any Tassara stories for me? <laughs> You're, well, I gave you I gave you a Bob Halpern story. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. That just a little vignette. Yeah, You know, do I have Tassahara stories? I mean, what I come away with, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell you a story. I had been living, I'll tell you a story that happened after Tassahara. Right. And I, and I didn't connect them. I ended up, I don't remember his name, talking to a guy who had lived in Alaska for years in the wilds. And we ended up having the conversation. 
And every time my mind wandered, he lost the train of what he was saying. He lost track of what he was saying. And the first time, first two times I didn't understand it. I thought it was him. And then I realized what the cause, not the codependent origination, but the, literally the cause and effect is that he was so used to being in the present moment when somebody moved out of that present moment, you know, he just went, he Mm. went a little bit on tilt. And Mm. I was just, when I recognized that, it just, it blew my mind. Yeah, that's good. And I remember sitting in the dining room, probably my last year at Tassajara, having a conversation with somebody and recognizing how quiet my mind was and how much I could just be with a person in front of me. And I recognized it when I wasn't. Mm. And it was just, it's like those moments. I mean, people would talk about, a friend of mine would talk about going to see Sai Baba mm-hmm. and in her room she'd wake up in the morning and it was just spaciousness there were just no thoughts and and not to say that that's just not an experience which it is but to just feel the depth of the quiet and the simplicity and being with what is and the bowing mm-hmm. I you know, I sit every morning and then I go out in my driveway and I literally bow to eight directions with prayers in a different prayer in each one and really a different acknowledgement of, of a different person, really paying, paying homage to the Buddhas in my life, as it were. Mm. But I just so loved bowing and mm. recognizing what that meant. Mm. And the depth of communication mm. that happens in the bow. I mean, it reminds me, you know, of the great Mahakashapa story when, at least as I heard it, when Buddha was enlightened, he thought, nobody's going to get this. I'm too far ahead of my time. And so the gap, which he thought was a big gap, turned out to be a much smaller gap. And, you know, he holds up the flower and Mahakashapa smiles and Presumably, that's the first transmission. In Mahayana. In Mahayana, yeah. But but the recognition of that, of true nature and who we are, and not just I recognize the God within you, but but that which goes beyond words was a daily, you know, not a daily, a moment-to-moment occurrence at Tassajara. Mm. When you pass somebody and, and the gift of that and how I'm not, David, I'm not sure I've ever thought of it this way before, mm. but it was in retrospect because, you know, we took it for granted. That's what we did. That was the culture. That mm-hmm. was the acknowledgement and the recognition mm-hmm. that somebody isn't different from us or whatever words we put it, put on pointing at the moon. Mm. But that's that's what comes back. Mm. That's Just good. The, the the joy and the love of bowing. Mm. 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 
Suzuki Roshi, you know, he said bowing is second only to Zajim. Uh, and, uh, are something like that. Uh, uh, and um, bowing was very important to him. You know, there were the nine bows that he yep. he continued. His his master was Gyokujun Soon, and his called his teacher was Kishizawa that later. And he said he got his understanding from Kishizawa, but he got his character from Soon. And uh, he had a lot of resentment against Soon. It took him years after Soon died for him to. I feel grateful to him. <laughs> but anyway, mm-hmm. Zorn was tough. Uh, and, uh, you know, n- never a kind word. And, um, uh, but, um, uh, he, 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 you know, Zorn could see that little Toshi, what's his name as a young monk, right? Little Toshi, uh, which is Shunyu in, in, uh, another pronunciation, I think, Toshi. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He could see that that he was resistant to this to this uh, prost- prostrate vow, uh, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so he had, so instead of doing it three times in the morning, do it do it six. Uh oh, no, not six, nine. Um, this is what happens to uh, President Biden and to Donald Trump. They put the wrong words in there. And just keep going, you know. Uh, and I do it. Uh, this is not a problem with either one of them. The, the problems uh, are not that because that doesn't interfere with your judgment or overall ability to function. That's a normal thing that happens when you get older. Uh, but <laughs> and it's it's funny to me that I that I would say six. I know it's nine. You know, it's nine bows. Uh, but um, anyway, that's a long enough correction. All right, there's that type of bow. And then there's the gasho, bowing to each mm-hmm. other when you meet. And, you know, Japanese don't do that. They do the ojigi, the, I think it's what it's called. They, you know, just tilt their bodies forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the only time they bow got show us like if they're at a temple or they're offering incense. Or um, I was talking to some uh, people about this uh, recently. There's a couple, who, uh, the, the the woman's Japanese and the husband's American, but they lived, oh, 17 years together in Japan. And they said, well, got show during uh, when you say didakimasu at a meal. Uh and so, uh, bowing of different ways, very, very important. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that he emphasized way beyond anything I've seen anywhere else, mm-hmm. including Japan. I mean, you know, I'd be at AH and Gashota monks walking by and they, they just sort of, you know, bend their bodies. Well, they don't Gashota each other like that. Uh, very seldom would see it. Uh, uh, and also it's hard to institute it in the group without it being sort of awkward and, um, you know, people, I mean, the way Suzuki did it was so natural, right? It was just totally natural, you know? Uh, he, but we would tend to stop 
and have a, a serious bow and then walk on. There was that type. There were people wanted to have do a, you know, just put your hands together when you pass. So in a sense, we, we could see the difference between each other and how we got showed how we bowed, did that and, and, um, socially, I developed it to be more and more, uh, graceful in time. But it's a, mm-hmm. it's a rule now. Uh, you know, uh, things get more yeah. instituted. It's, it's a rule. You know, people go there, they're expected to do that. Uh, well, the person, the person who's bowing, aside from Suzuki Roshi and Dick, that I remember most, and I think of him often when I bow, was Paul Rosenblum. Oh, had, yeah. Just as you said, he had a very, we all, we all had our distinctive bows. He had a particularly, to me, distinctive bow. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But let me, let me, if, if, let me change the subject and I'll tell two more stories. Yeah. Um, and this is one of my favorites, and you probably remember this, because I think he told it, Suzuki, I'm going to try now to say, just say Suzuki. But Suzuki told it every <laughs> so often. So he's, it's his first day as a night as a monk in the monastery. He's probably 13 years old. And yeah, the master says, you know, it's your job to get up in the morning and ring the bell to wake everybody up. Remember this story? Well, well, and, go um, on, go on. So, so he thinks to himself, there is no way if I fall asleep, I'm going to sleep through the time I'm supposed to wake up. And they didn't have alarm clocks. So he, he tries really, really, really hard to stay awake. And then he falls asleep and he wakes up exactly at the right moment to get up in time to ring the bell. Yeah. And he realized, and this was a big awakening for him he realized that you can't even say he could that when he was supposed to wake up in the morning he knew he could wake up and he didn't have to worry about it yeah yeah and that over time has turned out to be a big experience in my own life yeah of how often i'll have some idea of when i'm supposed to wake up and i'll wake up either earlier or later and I'll have just enough time to do what needed to be done that morning. Yeah. And the sub, the subset of that story, you know, is that I got to drive Suzuki Roshi to the, um, where was it? Down on the peninsula Zendo. It Los Altos Zendo. Yeah. Los Altos Zendo with the guy who was probably still alive and practicing who ran that and became a Zen teacher. Let's K. Uh, let's K. And he falls asleep in the car. And it's just it's just me and me and him. And I'm not quite sure what exit to take. And I just, you know, I didn't have an anxiety attack, but it was getting close. <laughs> he wake he wakes up a hundred yards before the exit and says, That one. Oh good. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and we must have all had stories like that. Uh, but yeah, he was, you know, people who were just tuned in, yeah, at whatever level of tune in we could we could describe it. Yeah, he would. Um, he talked about how he would sleep on the train and just wake up right before 
right in time to get off at his stop. Mm-hmm. Um, one time when he didn't, which is, was very disturbing to everybody, was when his mother died and he took the train. Uh, you know, maybe he was uh, grieving, but he, he didn't get off in Yaisu. He kept going like to the end of the line or something. And the way he told it was, or the way, uh, maybe he didn't tell it. Maybe I heard it from family members, uh, was that, uh, you know, he just spaced it out because, I mean, they all had just all these space out stories about him. Um, but it could have been, uh, that he just wanted to be alone for a while. Uh, and it's hard to get alone in Japan, I'll tell you. Well, when I was, you know, living on Page Street one day, and I'm sure this is not an unusual story, I get a call from Okasan saying, Suzuki Roshi's at the dentist and he's forgotten his teeth. Could you run them down, please? And I went off, went over and got his teeth in a little container and drove to Union Square. And sure enough, the dentist nurse was right, right there waiting for me to take his teeth upstairs to the dentist's office. Wow. Wow, that's pretty great, good. Great, great old times that almost, well, they become richer in the telling, David, and part of this time together, it's like, for me, it's been, I mean, none of, it's, it's, they aren't, they aren't new stories, but they're so rich and alive yeah. in the context, in the context of our conversation. I'm going to bring up a story that you were in. Now, the the most the most if I look at the stories that are the most commented on that made the biggest impression, number one would be uh, uh, Richard Baker's high seat ceremony. Incidentally, I think we should call Suzuki Shundu. That's what we call all the other masters. I mean, mm-hmm. Dogen had a Japanese last name. We don't even know what it is. Matsunaga, whatever it is. Uh, and, uh, uh, we don't say, I mean, they do that. Dogen, Zinji, uh, that sort of thing. But mainly when we just say Dogen. And I think we should just say Shundu. Uh, let me tell you, in Japan, they don't say Suzuki Roshi. They say Shundu-san. I'm talking about people who studied with him and revered him. And uh, mm-hmm. outside of the temple I was in, in uh, Okayama, the, inside the temple, it was Harada Roshi. Outside, neighbors would call him Harada-san. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's just absolutely normal. Uh, and in America, it's like, um, you know, uh, <laughs> somebody called up uh, – Bill Kwong and said, hi, Bill. Somebody who'd known him, you know, he said, Kwong Roshi. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, one thing you don't call yourself that. And actually, it's better not to call your own teacher that around other people. You call their master Roshi. You, you, you denigrate that which is you are close to you and you elevate that of others. That's just boilerplate Japanese. Uh, politeness and consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, well, anyway, all right, all right, enough of that. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so the, the, the mountain seat ceremony of, of, uh, 
stick from Shunju. That's number one. And uh, the funeral uh, gets uh, a high marks, but, uh, you know, that's after he left this, uh, left our, uh, you know, after he died. Uh, I'd say number two is the story uh, that you're in. Uh, that happened in 1969 on the day of a peace march in uh, San Francisco, a march uh, protesting the war in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, I, I'm setting the stage here. Um, a person in back, I think it was Ron Browning, asked a question. Now, Ron had applied to be a CO and was very, had very strong ideas about it. His father disowned him when he applied to be a CO. Just applied. Yes, it's a fascinating detail, but I realized later that Ron Browning was in Japan at this time. This is 1969, and uh, he'd left for Japan in 68 uh, and uh, didn't come back till 70. So uh, somebody said, why are we here? Uh, you know, doing this when we should be out there marching with people against the war. And Suzuki didn't understand him uh, very well. I, instantly, I wasn't there, but I've heard this story from so many people. Uh, I feel like I was, including you. Wonderful, wonderful from you. Uh, Suzuki said, excuse me, excuse me. And then you thought you'd be helpful. What What happened then? <laughs> Um, well, first of all, <clears throat> I never knew it was who it was who asked the question. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, you know, so what used to happen in those days, and I was sitting up closer and we had been, you know, we'd spent some summers at Tassahara. So we weren't, you know, I can't say we were older students, but we, some of, you know, we got to know the routine a little. Yeah. <clears throat> and when, and when Suzuki Roshi couldn't understand the question, somebody would pipe up and, basically repeat the question a little more slowly yeah, and hopefully a little more articulately than the question had been asked. Right. And so basically I said, you know, the question is why are we sitting here in the Zendo when people are outside marching? Why aren't we out there? And what I remember <laughs> is that this dragon <laughs> leaped, off the, leaped off the stage and came around behind me with his stick and started beating me on the shoulders, yelling, felt like yelling, but Suzuki Roshi didn't yell, saying, you fool, you fool, you're wasting your time. Yeah, but but, but the that, very loud voice, like you fool, you fool, you're wasting your and, time. And literally, and and that was that was it. And then he went back on the dais. So, you know, I was my heart was beating, but but two things happened after that. Bob Halpern, bless Bob, came up to me and said, "John, <laughs> you didn't got show." 
when when he was beating my shoulders. I did not put my hands in Gasho and bow. It's just the force of the stick pushed me forward. But I did not receive it in reverence. Yeah, well, but you were shocked, really, I'm sure. I mean, you know, no, everybody was shocked. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't know. Maybe Bob would have bowed. Maybe you would have bowed. I think, yeah, of, yeah, anyway, I think, I think never, he, he, he might have, yeah, yeah. He, he might well have. Yeah. But then the most telling part of it, and I just don't get full body chills, he came up to me afterwards. Uh, close to tears right now. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And I could see, you know, so his, let's see, it must have been his left arm was bare. And I could see his, you know, upper arm and the skin hanging down a little bit from his arm. And he basically said, you know, during the war, I was a pacifist. And I couldn't stop my, basically my countrymen from going to war. And I never got over it. And, you know, there, there was no apology. And he said, I was really in part expression my own, what word would I use? My own, not discomfort. You might be able to help me here. My own sadness. Yeah, his frustration. My frustration, yes, that I wasn't able to have an effect. Yeah. And, And I think, as I've learned later, as we've watched peace demonstrations not make a difference, particularly in Iraq, Oh. Which is a whole other conversation. Oh. Oh. And, and, but, but the interesting things about, so anyway, I really identified with him over the years, but a movie came out and I, I may have to send you the title that a friend of mine from the Bay Area who I knew back in those days, Steve Ladd, helped produce. And basically it was that the peace marches probably prevented Nixon from dropping the bomb. When all was said and done, Uh they didn't keep us from going into Vietnam and they didn't keep us from Iraq, but it may have kept us from that really ultimate tragedy. Yeah. And, and Ellsberg is part of that. And he, and, and basically, Ellsberg is the one who talks about it in the movie. And yeah. I'll get you the name of the movie, and I'll email it to you. Oh, yeah, please but do. It, but it's like, you know, the great story of Gandhi, and I don't remember the full context, where he's watching a plane fly overhead that's going to drop a bomb, drop bomb somewhere, and he goes into prayer. And somebody says, why are you praying? What you're doing isn't going to make a difference. And he says, how do you know? Yeah. How do you know what difference? Maybe not right here that that's going to make. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that was, so 
what difference, what, here we are in the same worlds. And here Suzuki is still wanting us to wake up <clears throat> to the full, to the full reality. He's not saying don't go out in March. I think he's saying know who you are when you're marching. Yeah, that's true. But I- both personally and politically. And it's like preference for that expectation, but do everything you can because that's what we're called to do. That's all we can do in this lifetime. Yeah. Is what we can try to do to make a difference in whatever dimension we're called. Yeah. Whether it's sitting on a cushion or marching or trying to get people to register to vote or dealing with mental health issues or literally just doing our own inner work so we can become more effective. Right. To support and serve other people. Right. And that's kind of what he was so vulnerable and so real. And I just never obviously ever experienced him like that. It was such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. To receive that personal communication from him. And there must have been other people around listening. But the fact that he would even come up to me afterwards and give me a, a, a bigger picture. Yeah. Was just, you know, you can, you can feel that that moment will never go away. Yeah. And it wasn't just, it, it's the whole, mo- whole set of moments. So David, th- you know, I, Thanks for bringing that up again, because each time we share these stories, it deepens yeah. the, whole, the whole field. Yeah. I, I want to add something that he wasn't really hitting you. He was hitting the whole group. Exactly. And he would even I, he say just, that. He would say, yes. uh, you know, I might be hitting. And also the fact that he, you, of course, the. You could say, well, it's because you asked the question, but he knew you were somebody who could, were, were, were that he could do it with. He wouldn't mm-hmm. have done it with, with, uh, somebody who'd freak out or where wouldn't, I mean, he had an, you know, an intuitive, instantaneous hit is what I would say that it would, mm-hmm. you know, he could do it with you. Um, uh, and he would say that he's, you know, he would um, sometimes. Well, he would sometimes say to me things about somebody else that later I would realize that he was saying to me about me, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, but anyway, uh, in Japan, uh, he he he. Uh, you know, I talked to him about this. Uh, uh, before the war, he actually, uh, printed things up and handed them out and tried, you know, uh, he, he said his idea was that Japan, uh, can be stronger without, uh, you know, without being involved in war. And of course, Japan was involved in, 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 uh, a very, very aggressive, uh, military action way before Pearl Harbor, uh, mm-hmm. in China. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, but at some point, maybe it was before then, 
at some point he had to stop because you couldn't, you couldn't oppose the war. So maybe after they, uh, they were attacking China, he couldn't do it anymore. But his, um, you know, I spent time with young men who stayed in his temple, uh, uh, and, uh, bef- actually before they went in the army, uh, and at the end of their school or before their time. And they said there would no, there would no place like it. There was nothing else like it. It was like a salon. And, uh, one person said, uh, you know, the first time he went, there was this quiet monk sitting there, not saying anything. And he said people were able to express themselves in ways that you just couldn't find anywhere. They weren't saying mm. pacifist things. They weren't saying anti-war things. They were saying, you know, Japanese are very subtle. It's just like it, 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 they were talking in ways that that weren't going to get them in trouble, you know. Right. And, uh-huh. and, and actually, there was a lot of that, uh, in Japan. In, uh, the, in, uh, Crooked Cucumber Chapter 6 on the war in Japan, it's all from Japanese who were there. None of it is mm-hmm. from my personal research. And it gives you a picture of this much more complex of, uh, you know, uh, like a dark cloud hanging over Japan and like Japan just being engulfed in a sort of madness. Then you can see other countries are, you know, it's, I live in Indonesia and Indonesia is doing pretty good right now, but you know, in the mid sixties, in, uh, in, uh, late 98, where they've had, uh, well, the mid sixties, there was just a bloodbath happening mm-hmm. here, uh, against communists and Chinese and then, uh, anybody, uh, who uh, you owed money to, uh, and, you know, so, uh, and, and the term run amok comes from Indonesia and uh, they certainly ran amok. Uh, and, uh, you know, America is, is, uh, experiencing something like that now that hasn't exploded yet. Uh, we hope it doesn't. Uh, but, uh, Japan, Japan's period of mag- madness in the first half of the, 20th century was so extreme. Some of the worst examples of human behavior ever shocked the Germans. Really, the Germans were just uh, well. Anyway, David, uh, yeah, I'm going to sadly have to hit the pause button. Yeah, and I would anytime you want. I'd be happy to continue the conversation, and this just feels so rich. And full and complete. Yeah, I'd like to. In itself. So I really like am great, grateful for your n- nudging me to actually do this. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I'm it's really enjoying great. talking with you. And, and uh, it's very touching talking to you. And, and you know, uh, it's uh, right now it's about uh, 9.30. Uh, and I am eager to go to bed. Hey, you know, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I call Jane Hirschfield for a talk for a podcast. Well, give give her my love. We have not been in touch in ages. I am so fond of that woman. And another Tassahara story. Yeah. During one training period, I was really ambivalent about staying because it 
for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And I end, and I ended up talking to Jane and she said, well, just sit with that ambivalence. And if that ambivalence lasts like two or three weeks, then maybe you should begin to take it seriously. But in the meantime, just watch the ambivalence come and go and see what it does. Smart. And that was a big teaching story for me. Yeah, it's good. See, and that's coming and from she, a student. That's good. Yeah, well, that's who we learned a lot from. Yeah. All right, brother. This has just been the best. Well, I want to say one other Peter, thing. Uh, I am in touch with Peter just, Coyote. Uh, and uh, he's going to do a podcast. Came, the, the headset just came out of the phone. As I got up from sitting here. Yeah. David, to be continued. Lots and lots of love. Yeah, I, wait a minute. I would just say I am in touch with Peter Coyote, and uh, I, I'll uh, uh, I, I'll uh, let him know what you had to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, uh, however you choose to translate. Well, it'll be. I'll, I'll take my time. Uh, yeah. Look, so right, uh, I'm going to email you about when we talk next. Okay, this has been You're great. On. Take care. Be well. You too. Ditto. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, John. Very good. Really appreciate it. Wonderful talking with you. Yeah, I didn't mention in the in the prelude uh, your that your your spiritual search <laughs> has has uh, never stopped either. Your practice. I don't know if. Whatever, you know, your way-seeking mind, your path uh, continues. And um, look, we'll see you next week, all right? This has been a Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Poobah of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Dog and Pandita. Guest Dog and for another week or so, Boom Boo and Feline Manis, and they're all getting along. Electricity went out the other night, and you know, I have to find a flashlight, and I did. I mean, it was dark, it was, you couldn't see anything, or I couldn't see anything. And there I see Bondi and Manis lying down on the floor near each other. <laughs> it took a, it took a little time for it to, that <laughs> when Manus came, um, of course, Bonnie's he's a cat. Uh, she just think that she wants to play, you know. She wants to chase it, um, and uh, uh, so you know, it took. It was less than two weeks uh, that she learned. They have to, you know, coexist. And, and Manus, of course, it, it, all a cat has to do with body is just turn around. Bonnie's really small. And, uh, and all a cat has to do is just turn around and look at her and Bonnie will stop. And, and that's what she she's used to play. We had a cat when we got Bonnie. She's a little puppy. We already had a cat. So that that relationship evolved peacefully from the first and they became really good friends and just loved to play and chase each other. 
uh, and they'd sleep on our bed together. But um, uh, so Bondi hadn't had another relationship like that. And Modest so far doesn't seem to have that uh, play thing uh, like dearly departed Gucci had. Uh, oh, I, I watched the other day out on the gong, which is like an alley, right, uh, that we live on. Well, it's a dead-end uh, street. And, um, uh, you know, I go walking out there because there's no traffic, right? I love walking out. It's, uh, if, if I go back and forth on it three times, that's a thousand steps. So it's nice. And, you know, I know all the neighbors and all that. Uh, so anyway, I was out there, and there was a cat I, I didn't recognize. It was small. It was way down, you know, like 100 yards down. Body saw him. Wham! She's out just as fast as she can go. 100 yards, maybe 50 yards. Uh, and uh, so that cat runs, bang, you know, it's so many places it can get away. It can jump up on things, go under gates. And um, so I walk down there to the end, and I walk back. And uh, usually Bondi comes back with me, and then if I go again, I don't always go back four or three times. If I go again, she'll go back with me to the other end, sniff around and stuff. Uh, we do it multiple times in a day. So. <laughs> but um, anyway, I go back, and I see Bondi's way down there just still, and I see there's something else. Oh, Pondy and the and that cat that was a small cat, uh, maybe a teenager. Uh, they're just sitting, looking at each other, about two feet apart. Uh, <laughs> so I walk down there and I watch him, and that cat is just poised, you know, looking at Bondy, just re just ready. Just Bondy makes the slightest move, the cat's going to be out of there, and the bang, the cat runs off. And it's like zero to 60 in one second, in a split second. Bondi, same thing, right after it, just zoom, right in there, a foot apart, just running, la, 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 and it goes, cat goes up to a fence where there's can't go down under it. Probably could, it was wood, it, pretty rough wood. It could have probably climbed it, but it didn't. It just turned around and looked at Bondi, bang, Bondi stops right in front of it, and they're looking at the cats. <laughs> Just looking at it by. And then that goes on. They're staring at each other again for a few minutes, and then bang, the cat's off, and body changes, zoom, back to where the cat lives under the gate. And I realize that cat came back out to play with Bondi. That is so cool. And, uh, you know, that's Bondi's favorite thing. Uh, one problem... In walking her, you know, she'll stay with me. I don't need, I don't need to, you know. I leave uh, a lot of times. I walk with her. Uh, I, I leave the leash loose. If but if there's traffic, I don't. I have to hold on to it because if she sees a cat or a duck or chicken on the other side of the road. She will immediately go after it. It doesn't matter if there's a steamroller coming there. She absolutely has no sense of that traffic um, and that. And, um, yeah. 
So got to walk with her with the leash. But, you know, once we get to the beach, bang, she's free. Uh, or even near the beach, there's a whole long walkway, another gong, very long. Now, that's, a, that's over 100 yards to the beach. As soon as we get there, even though there's motor scooters going in and out there, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, she stays on the side. And then she's fine. We don't have to worry about it. She won't run off. She'll just stay with it. And she went around. She'll go zooming down to the water and go in it and come back. She loves being in the water. She'll, if, if it's right, with it, she can see little fish in there. She, she'll just stay. She'll stay forever. Just uh, walking after the fish or trying to get crabs, like little tiny crabs in the sand all over. That That is maybe her favorite thing, chasing cats. Well, I don't know. They're both right up there. Okay, well, that's enough of, of a diversion there. Um, so, look. <laughs> so, we're, we're coming from Sunur, and we're wishing you and everyone a grand awakening.